Professor in the Geography Department of Environmental Geography. My own research in the Middle East uh, covers environmental governance uh, management issues, uh, most recently around water. Um, so, uh, welcome. Um, we did this event last year and it was very successful, and I'm really pleased as a centre we're engaging with students. Um, and um, just to say very, very briefly, if you're interested in the centre, please go to our website, you can register. You can, um, if you register, we'll send you notifications. There are opportunities uh, available through the centre, but as with other departments and institutes and centres in LSC, we, I regret, we can't, um, we don't do unpaid internships. Occasionally we'll have, we will advertise kind of paid internships uh, um, for work in the centre. I know from colleagues in the centre, there were things, uh, particularly translation and Arabic to English, that we're always interested if there's expertise out there in the student community. Uh, we have a dissertation prize every year. So if you end up doing a dissertation on the Middle East at master's level, um, we would uh, be very, very interested in that being entered into competition. We'd just uh, be judging that in January for the students from last year, master's students. And of course, our events are, are an important way which you, as the students, engage with us as a community. We are the kind of research hub uh, for Middle East, North Africa issues within LSE. We're not a teaching department, but through our work, um, commissioning research and working with colleagues across the school, um, we cover all <coughs> disciplines uh, across LSE. Okay? Um, usually this is a very uh, a cheerful, informal event. Um, of course, at the moment, there's a kind of sober, very somber tone at the moment as uh, unfortunately not infrequently in the region, there's great violence and, uh, and loss of life at the moment. And if you're LSC, uh, a member of the community, you would have received an email from the, the school management committee yesterday. I wouldn't say any more about it, except that very much we share the sentiment in that email that we have uh, great distress about what's going on and the school is here to support you. We know many, we have many colleagues and students we know are in situations in which uh, they are deeply upset or traumatized. And just to let you know, as the email set out, we do have support for you. So please, please get in touch, okay? That applies to both uh, students and staff. And as the message said, we are very much an inclusive, open, respectful community. We ask everybody within the LSE community to treat each other with that respect and dignity, yeah? I wish the world would like that, but unfortunately it's not. So, on to the business, okay? Um, just to let you know, this event will be recorded. There'll be pictures taken throughout, which we might use in our social media, so make sure you give us a nice smile when the camera comes around. Perhaps not, not too obvious, yeah? Um, there's a drinks reception downstairs in the reception of this building. We'll, we'll finish in uh, seven o'clock, and you're welcome to join us in the drinks reception and talk to us. You'll, there'll be various colleagues uh, from the centre available and you can find out more about the centre. Um, we will have the structure of the event is this. We have three guests who we're delighted are joining us to talk about their kind of pathways, their career pathways into Middle East, North Africa related work 
coming from different uh, 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 backgrounds, different career choices, and I hope um, of interest to you. I'm sure we, I know we have a diverse body of students here from di doing different subjects, different disciplines, different departments. So what I'll do is I'll introduce them in turn in which they'll speak. Each is going to speak for 10 minutes about their own particular experience. We have apologies from one of my colleagues, uh, Nizreen Arafai, our Arabic content editor. Um, she was going to be here also tonight, but she's got COVID. We sent her our, 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 our best wishes. Um, but if anybody's interested in the type of work that she does, Nezreen is very interested in, in Arabic culture, literature. She co-adapted the Beekeeper of Aleppo um, uh, for the stage. Anybody interested in that kind of creative media careers path, although she's not here, just talk to me and I can put you in contact after the meeting. Okay, so on to our, our three guests. Oh, look, we're filling up. This is fantastic. Yeah. Um, we will start. I'll give a, a brief uh, information about each of our guests, uh, uh, and that will be the order in which they will speak. Okay? And then we'll have questions and answers at the end. Okay? Um, my first colleague to speak will be my colleague over here, uh, Dr. Arga Birgen, who's a research officer in the LSE Middle East Centre. His work uh, uh, similar to mine, focuses on water politics, transboundary water resources management, and hydraulic infrastructure development. Arda holds a PhD in development studies from the University of Bonn, an MA in international affairs, international security studies from George Washington University, and a BA in international relations from Bill Kent University. Before joining LSE, he worked as a teaching fellow at the University of Warwick, and an honorary research fellow at the University of Sussex, and as a lecturer in Clark University, for those of you interested in kind of research career pathway, uh, perhaps also uh, academic pathways, welcome to talk to Arda uh, after the event and also me, of course. Uh, following uh, uh, Arda, uh, Marwa Babad is director of the Yemen Policy Center. She's a researcher, development consultant with over 10 years of experience working in the fields of community engagement, gender, peace and security, and youth political inclusion. Mar was director of the Oxford Research Group uh, strategic peacebuilding program between 2018 and 2020. There she led the delivery of a track two uh, project. Track two means unofficial diplomatic uh, pathway that fed into the United Nations-led Yemen peace process. And you also told me, uh, Mar, you're also an associate fellow at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute in London for the past three years. Yes, wonderful. Uh, so Mar, obviously, available to talk about the type of career pathway that takes you into sort of international development, um, gender, peace, security, and perhaps track two type initiatives. And uh, last but not least, uh, to my right, Jack Sproson is a member of Gernica uh, 37 Chambers, uh, international human rights, criminal law experts based in London, specializes in public-private international law, international human rights law, international humanitarian law, international criminal law. Jack has extensive expertise in humanitarian legal issues pertaining to conflict and climate-related insecurity and displacement in Africa and the Middle East. Most recently, is the lead counsel for a major project advocating for the continuation of UN cross-border humanitarian access to Syria. Um, so that's the, the short bios of our three guests. Before I ask Arta to start, may I Please join me in welcoming them to LSE.
as I said, we'll have questions after all of our guests have spoken, yeah? Uh, Adam. Well, thank you, Michael, for the introduction, and thank you very much for everybody for being here. Uh, as Michael said, my name is Arda Lilia, and I'm a research officer here at the LSE Middle East Center. Uh, but uh, before I start, uh, can I uh, just, you know, to see uh, how many undergrad students we have in the room? Could you please raise your hand if you're doing your undergrad? And postgrad? PhD? Just one. And one last question, like, uh, have you ever thought about pursuing a PhD? Please raise your hand. Oh, there's some hope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I assume that you know, most of you, or all of you, uh, know what a you know, PhD uh, is, or you know what um, a PhD researcher does. You know, the, as soon as you know, the, he or she you know, the, uh, gets the, you know, the degree. But, but of course, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is uh, I mean, you should know that there are pros and cons of you know the person you. Meet. I mean, it's not it's not something you should uh, consider doing only if you like you know the reading material or you know writing some blog. I mean, it's a huge commitment and it's a it's a very you know the time consuming um, um, enterprise I would say. And um, I remember some words very. I mean, I don't know who said it to be honest, but you know it said something like. Uh, PhD, I mean, only 10% of the PhD requires intelligence and the rest requires perseverance. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, the being uh, very hardworking and being very, you know, the uh, patient uh, about reaching your goal. So it's not something you should or can consider just because you like um, reading a lot on a specific topic. So um, I would say you know you should think very carefully before before you before it's too late and um and also i think you should keep i mean i don't know where you want to pursue your phd if you want to pursue your phd of course but you should also keep in mind that there uh, uh, different countries have different uh, academic traditions uh, i mean i was lucky to uh, you know the experience the you know the uh, the workings of turkish academia i from turkey by the way uh, turkish academia american academia german academia and uh, finally the british academia and I would say, you know, you should be, uh, you should think a lot before um, choosing your, you know, the institution or choosing your program. Uh, but most importantly, I don't think you should choose your institution first. I think you should choose your supervisor first. I mean, that's one of the mistakes I myself made, you know, when I uh, moved to Germany to, you know, to pursue my PhD. I mean, not because the, there was uh, something wrong with the German academia. Maybe there was, I don't know. I didn't receive the supervision I expected to get uh, so the whole process the whole experience was uh, extra difficult for me and we sometimes you know, talk to uh, each other with my like colleagues and if we had you know the more supportive supervisors or if we had more um, uh, understanding supervisors you know where we would end up would be completely different uh, so I would Definitely suggest you to you know to pick your supervisor first, and then uh, you know to check the you know the requirements of the program or um, you know the, the rankings of the institutions. I know uh, now, especially nowadays, given the you know the uh, metric-based neoliberal you know the academic system of today, you know the all we care about is sometimes you know the the rankings of the specific university or the center. But um, if I were you, I wouldn't do that. I mean, I did it and I regret it. Um, and also. Um, I want to talk about, I also um, would like to emphasize that 
pursuing a PhD as a non-native English speaker uh, is extra difficult. I mean, I don't know how many of you uh, are international students here, but uh, just consider uh, doubling the time uh, you would spend on, you know, the understanding test, texts, writing your uh, chapters in your dissertation, or you know, the, even you know, the taking your um, examination. It will uh, take much of uh, much more time than you would expect, and uh, also. Uh, Given that you know that some of us are uh, have the passport privilege or you know the mobility privilege, I mean maybe you would not be able to uh, travel the world uh, as convenient as your uh, you know the colleagues from the global north. Uh, I mean Turkey might be considered a global north or global south. I don't know, but passport-wise, I would definitely say that it belongs to the global south because you know the uh, the mobility is really you know the limited for um, for you know the citizens of uh, that part of the world. Um, so yeah, and another pro of uh, pursuing a PhD, I would say, you know, the, to, uh, doing fieldwork. I think it's the most fun part of doing, uh, doing research. And if you're, um, especially if you're into, you know, the qualitative research, qualitative uh, uh, work, uh, I think you would enjoy it. But at the same time, uh, as uh, it's been, you know, studied a lot uh, in the literature as well, it, uh, it has certain, you know, the dangers. It, 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 Sometimes you know it, it, it kind of um, it becomes very challenging to you know to collect data you know to meet some uh, new people in uh, in places called the geography you know the uh, I mean safety is of course uh, sometimes uh, becoming a little you know, concern for the researchers but at the same time field work is the most fun part of the uh, PhD I would say. Um, I don't know how much time I have, but I also want to talk about uh, the okay the opportunities uh, after uh, getting your uh, PhD. Of course, uh, I always had, uh, when my students they used to ask me uh, whether they whether what I thought about you know, their plans of you know the uh, pursuing a PhD. I was my answer was always uh, what do you want to achieve in life? I mean, it's I mean only you know. Uh, you should uh, pursue a PhD or not. because uh, if your goal is not to stay in academia, uh, one, including myself, might say it's a waste of time and resources because there are many things that uh, you can do without PhD. And people, I think, you know, they uh, are mistaken in terms of uh, thinking that uh, if they have a PhD, they would, uh, you know, they get a higher position or they can just, you know, the substitute uh, five years of. A PhD with five years of uh, fieldwork experience. I don't think that's true. I mean, it didn't work in my case. And uh, after getting my uh, degree, I also thought about you know quitting academia altogether. But it wasn't that easy because even though you have some uh, transferable skills or you know you you gain a lot uh, after you know the five years or six years, um, it's not always. Uh, I mean, from the perspective of the employers, including you know, some international, international institutions. Um, I don't know, uh, research institutions, it's, it's, it's not really the same. So I think that's something uh, to keep in mind as well. So PhD is not a must, you know. Uh, experience matters in, in some contexts, and uh, employers do care about, um, you know, the where you worked more than you know, the uh, where you published. You know what I mean? Um, so um, my last point would be related to my last point. Uh, of course, there are alternative career paths. I mean, once you get a PhD, you don't have to uh, 
uh, stay in academia. So what can you do? Of course, I mean, we live in London, uh, and uh, this is like the, you know, the mecca of you know, the think tanks. Um, other, uh, you know, the policy institutions, you know, the consultancies, there are, of course, many opportunities out there, but uh, opportunities don't come to you. <laughs> Most of the time, you should, you know, to be uh, proactively, you know, be, uh, follow uh, these opportunities. So, uh, especially if you don't have the opportunity to, you know, the uh, network in person, uh, LinkedIn or uh, here in academia, like, you know, academy.edu, ResearchGate, you know, there are many, you know, the great websites uh, you can you know, use to, you know, to meet new people, introduce yourself, introduce your research, introduce your uh, research, or I don't know, you know, the thematic, you know, interest to people you uh, would like to, you know, meet. Uh, I myself was, you know, the approach uh, by a master's student you know, five years ago, and uh, I first became her external supervisor, and then we wrote a, she's a, she was a complete stranger, by the way. Um, we then wrote a book chapter, and then we published an article on GeoForum, and then she's part of our project that we were really running with Michael. So it, it became a uh, you know very fruitful academic uh, uh, cooperation at the end. So uh, you never know, you know, uh, just don't be shy and uh, you know write to people, reach out to people, and if they are interested, they would reply. And if, if they are not, they won't bother anyone. So, and if someone won't, doesn't you know bother talking to you, it's not worth you know the working with this person anyway, so uh, you will not. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's about it. I mean, since I was told to, you know, to keep it pretty informal, um, I'll just stop there. And if you have any, you know, the questions or comments, uh, we can always, you know, be, uh, talk during the Q&A session and outside too. Thank you. Thank you. where to start but I was told to tell my story for how I got here so I'm just gonna tell you that it started with quitting <laughs> so I actually um, I, I uh, always wanted to be an engineer went to engineering school figured out it wasn't for me for so many reasons um, let's not talk about them now but it wasn't for me um, one of them is that I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a woman and I wanted to be a civil engineer and I was studying in Yemen. So I was like, oh, it's going to be useless. Let's not do this and be a bit smarter. Um, another thing is my dad told me so, but I didn't listen because that's stubborn. So sometimes maybe we should consider our parents' advice. Maybe. <laughs> um, he always told me to go to politics. I was like, no, I can be an engineer. Like all your boys, what's wrong with me? <laughs> so again, I know most of you have already chosen what you're doing, but I guess the premise here is that sometimes we have to make brave decisions and they might feel really tough to make and kind of out of nowhere and a bit crazy and no one around you would support you. But you have to make it because deep inside you know it's the right thing for you and I think that's what I did. Uh, it did send me into depression for a couple of months, but hey, I'm okay. <laughs> so, yeah, um, so that's how I got into where I am today. Um, or that was the first step. Um, but I guess I kind of follow Arda's approach because I think it's more interesting. Um, and I'd like to ask who's here interested in international development, conflict and peace studies, anything like that. Okay, good. A good number of us here. 
Um, so I'm going to try and tell you what works and what doesn't work in that sector and how um, I managed to get the number of opportunities I was able to um, throughout my career. Um, but again, it's, it starts with knowing what you're really interested in and then being brave on knocking the right door, but also setting really ambitious goals. Um, when I was doing my undergrad, I knew that I wanted to kind of immediately start at an officer level. I didn't want to go through the assistant and all of that. And instead of kind of just setting a goal and being like, oh, that's what I'll do because I deserve it, I actually worked for it. So during my studies, I was doing a lot of voluntary work. I was interning. I was kind of taking the initiative to do different things. And that helped me explore what I wanted to do and what are my strengths, like know more about my strengths and weaknesses and kind of work on what I needed to work on. So I'd say that's the first thing that kind of got me to my first job quite easily because I got hired quite easily because I, I, I acquired all the skills that would take to take the position. Um, the second thing is your first manager might be your worst manager. They're not always supportive. They're not always great. And if you're a woman, you might have a harasser as your manager. You might have another woman who's not supportive. You might. There are so many types of managers that we face in life. Um, but what really matters is who we are. Because if you take a, you know, a hundred quid, crush it. I mean, there's no hundred quid note, but you know, metaphorically, crush it and like, you know put it back, it will still work as a hundred. Like that doesn't really change. Your value doesn't change by what others think of you. And that is really important in like career life. It's important in like education as well, but I guess it's more important when we are, you know, going out to the world and expressing ourselves and who we are and our beliefs. Um, so I'd say, yeah, make sure that you don't get disappointed. Have high expectations, that's okay but also learn how to manage your expectations, especially in the first you know, couple of jobs that you get. As much as you know your worth, you'll be able to get to where you need to be and where you want to be. And again, like I know it's very cliche to say set goals for like midterm, long-term, but actually knowing where you want to be, I'm not gonna say five years, because I think nowadays that's too long, but you know, two to three years, do you want to continue in that organization? Because that helps you know if you want to, how much you want to invest in that institution, right? There is that doing my job part, which you have to do really fully and to the you know best of your ability. But also there is the extras that earns you the extra credit with your managers, with the institutions, and everything. And when you know if you want to continue in where you're at or not, you know if you want to invest time and effort or not, and that is really important. Um, big part of my journey has been also about networking. Like almost every job I got, like to be honest, even my first job was a result of good networking. Um, it was a result of showing up to the right places at the right time, not knowing people. It wasn't like, you know, um, because somebody was my uncle or whatever. No, no, no. It was because I showed up to the right places at the right time. And I knew how to speak to people in their language. And language is really important. And here, we're not talking English or Arabic or whatever your language is. We're talking about understanding what the other person is expecting of you and knowing how to tangle around that with them. Like how to, how to play that game 
while also staying true to yourself. I'm going to keep saying that because it's really important to stay true to our values and to who we are. And as women, as this room is full of women, uh, which is really great, uh, no offense to the men in the room, it is really, really, really important to negotiate. Don't take no for an answer. Don't accept the first offer. There is always, I mean, I tell you this also as a manager and as I, I, I director and as someone who like, you plan in the budget for negotiation. It is part of the budget plan. Men always ask for it. Women, <coughs> not really. And I find that really frustrating because I end up paying people, you know, what they ask for. So you should ask for what you think is right. Um, I remember at, um, like when I, a couple of years ago, just before COVID, I got a consultancy from a government body. And I didn't know how much to price myself for. Like I've done, I've done consultancies before, but mostly it was for charities, INGOs. So this was the first for me. And I was like, okay, I don't know how much to put as my daily rate. And then what I decided to do is I went up to my manager, who was a white man, and I was like, hey, Richard, uh, by the way, um, if I was, if, if somebody asks you to do one, two, three, how much would you charge? And he was like, this amount. And I was like, okay, that's, how, that's, that's exactly what I sent. And I got no bash, backlash. And I was doing that consultancy with a, with a, with a colleague who's also a friend, another woman. And she was like, Marwa, no, that's too much. And I was like, uh, no. <laughs> I asked Richard and he said that's this number. So that's what we're asking for. And literally, we got no fight. No clash, nothing. We just got paid really highly. And that was the point. I started advocating for women to ask for the right amount of money. Just understand the market, ask your male colleagues, ask random people, dude, ask Twitter uh, or whatever Elon Musk's call it these days, right? So just like ask people how much they charge. And if it, if it, if it sets right with you, then it sets right. And if it doesn't, ask yourself why. Because sometimes it's overpriced and sometimes it's underpriced. And sometimes women do actually put more work into a job than a man. So in the structure of how I build like a consultancy budget, I put prep time where unfortunately not all male consultants put prep time into their work, right? But they charge still highly. So again, you need to understand the kind of balance between the amount you want to charge versus the work you want to do. Another thing is register your hours if you're doing consultancies. Like make sure to know how much you're spending on each thing because that teaches you, your pattern teaches you how much you time and effort you need for each type of work and that teaches you more about yourself. Um, and I think, again, we're in a world where it doesn't really matter how much experience you have anymore. It's about how good you are and how much you're able to present yourself. Like, I'm not saying experience doesn't matter, but to me, I work with a lot of young Yemenis actually in my institution, and I don't care how much, like how many years they spent working in the sector. If I think they will be the right person for the job, I'm willing to train them. And that's the attitude a lot of institutions have these days, regardless of the type of institution. Um, so, like, just be the right person for the job you want, and trust me, you'll get it. It's not going to be trouble. Um, yeah, I think um, I just want to talk a couple of points. 
um, on on um, what opportunities are like the work I do at YPC at the Yemen Policy Center is mostly think and action work. So it's a lot of think tanky work. Uh, it's a lot of research. So in terms of research, whether you are a local or an international, there are a couple of things that we need to kind of try and do and improve in the sector. So there is more move now towards you know, participatory research approaches and how that is useful and how, you know, making the people you're researching the center of the work, but also how crediting those people is really important. And I think it's a really important ethic that like new generations like you should also adopt and bring and kind of push, push more because I think, you know, Sadly, this is kind of something that is not, not everyone is on board with that because it's so easy to, to extract all the information you want through your interviews, but never give credit to the locals, especially local experts. Um, so I think that's something that, that there is an opportunity there. If you're doing your master's thesis and you're doing interviews, think about that and think about how you make the people you're working on or with kind of part, big part of your research and kind of if it's not sensitive and if you can name them, do that because it's really useful. The other thing is how we link research to innovation um, and to um, especially kind of sim simplifying research. So at YPC, a lot of what we do is turn our research products to simplified videos. Um, and those, vi like we've, we've won um, like global um, prizes for this, but it is really what we get praised for because taking a concept like ceasefire and turning it into a simple video that explains what it is, both for you know, the local communities that you're working for and with, and for those who are interested on the subject matter or work on it, but they're not specialists, it's very easy to digest. It's very easy to kind of comprehend. And that maybe kind of sparks an interest in people and then they go and read a paper or whatever. No one reads paper, like long papers, and unless they have to. And that's a fact. <laughs> like, it's just too difficult, too time consuming. It doesn't happen. So kind of think about also how you can create, like, if you're a creative person, how to link that kind of creative mindset with the research work or whatever job you want to do really because now this is the trend and this is where things are going so kind of linking the different skills that we have or even learning new skills so we can um kind of move forward and bring something new to the table um and one last thing if you're asking it's it's building on arda's uh, point around emailing and asking for people's you know help or whatever just please don't write help uh, you know a danish student who's interested in yemen like that is really not good <laughs> like when i see that and i receive those emails like i am i'm quoting from something here don't write it like that really seriously it's, it makes me think like mm, do i really want to work with you if that's your starting point and don't try to be like oh i'm very interested in your work on this and that and you like pick up something from someone's bio that is very old like you obviously are not and I know that, and that means you're a liar, and I'm not gonna take you. Like, I'm just being serious and honest here, so just please be genuine. Be like, I don't know much about Yemen, or about Syria, about whatever subject you're interested in, and I'd like to learn, and I think you might be the right institution for me. 
maybe you can have a conversation and see if that works. Because also you don't know if you would want to work with me. Maybe I'm not the right mentor for you. Right, so just kind of be honest, but also do your research properly and don't use cringe as an approach. And I'll leave it with that. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I think just picking up on your point about bad managers, um, I think my first manager was my last manager and I hated him so much that I became self-employed. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's very true. Um, so my name's Jack, I'm a, a barrister in England and Wales. For those of you who aren't familiar with the difference between barristers and solicitors, um, in England we have, as many of you, if not all of you will know, we don't have lawyers as in the American system. It's split into barristers who historically appear at court and solicitors who prepare the case historically with some blend in between them these days. Um, so I, I guess I'll start from the start as to how I got to where I was and then I'll again probably give some unsolicited advice. So um, perhaps um, unlike you, Mara, I, I was um, sort of academically successful when I was leaving school, but I was unsure how to channel that. Um, and so, for one reason or another, I ended up going to Durham to study law. Um, and it was, I'll be honest, I despised it for the first year. Um, I was like, this was a huge mistake. Who wants to learn about contract law? Not me. Um, and then I got to my second year and I took my first module in international law, and I was just on fire immediately. Um, it coincided at the time that I was doing it with really the start of the Syrian revolution. And it was something that I became immediately aware in that instance of how helpless I was to help because I knew so little but also how helpless people who knew about international law were in order to try and help what was going on. And that feeling of both uninformed and for those who were informed, helplessness, led me to basically drill down into this area. I, as I say, I was on fire. It was something that just fascinated me. There, in my mind, had to be a way when you had civilians being starved and bombed and gassed to do something about it. And the last 10 years have shown that perhaps not, but maybe, maybe in the future now. But that's what drove me. And so I went to Leiden uh, University to study international law, and it was there that I fell in love with the, the physical advocacy side of it, the speaking to people, the trying to convince people of things. But I still couldn't see, I was interested in being a barrister, but I still couldn't see how, um, and I do it to an extent now, but advocating next door in the Royal Course of Justice would make a difference to a civilian in Syria. And that was really what made me reluctant to engage in, in the field. Um, fast forward a couple of years, I'd been working at the Mechanism for International Criminal Tribunals and then started doing some consultancy work. And I came across Guernica 37, which is where I work now. And quite poetically, horrifically, 
Guernica itself was born out of Syria also in the same way that my interest in the area was. It was it, it's a real outlier in terms of the way barristers' chambers do things. Um, it was born essentially out of our two founders coming together, so Almudena Bernabeu, who's a um, Spanish lawyer who has been in America for many, many years, um, mainly working in Latin America, and Toby Cadman, who is and was a British barrister at the time. And both of them were equally unsatisfied with the area that they were in. Almudena was unsatisfied with civil society. She recognised the limitations of making that short-term impactful change that you can achieve often with law. And concomitantly, Toby was unhappy with the fact that being in court really doesn't get you many places often. If you catch anyone and put them before the ICC, you're looking at a 15-year trial, if that, maybe release because somebody messed up on an interview somewhere eight years ago. And either way, you're looking at a very limited range of things that you and so they came together to make Guernica 37, which is effectively an NGO, the Guernica Centre, and the Barristers' Chambers, Guernica 37 Chambers. And together they play off each other's weaknesses. And I found Guernica and I knew that that was where that feeling of helplessness would begin to become ameliorated. And the reason for that really was because Guernica, much like myself, I think understands justice and social change as an ecosystem of approaches. There will be, unlike Hollywood, there will be no time in which you win in court and everybody behind you cheers and it's great and everything's solved. Um, it's long term, it's a struggle, you've got to be creative with things and that's where this ecosystem of approaches comes in. And we can demonstrate that or I can demonstrate that in relation to Syria, for example. So today, Toby Cadman, Head of Chambers, and uh, one of my other colleagues who I work very closely with in Syria are in The Hague, uh, the International Court of Justice for the first hearing uh, in relation to uh, the Netherlands and Canada versus Syria. And that was a result of one of my colleagues essentially putting that case together. And when he went to people and said, we should bring this case against Syria, the response he got from states was, well, we know the Syrian state is committing torture. Why do we need a case to prove that? The reality is, that is a way that you can begin to address this systemic impunity that surrounds the Syrian conflict. Um, and so whilst it may make limited impact in terms of substance, we finally have the Syrian state engaging with an international body which has been able to not able to escape for, for many many years now but it doesn't just end in the courtroom and I think advocacy much of the most impactful advocacy is outside of the courtroom certainly for myself and that's where I have found my real passion which is for example I mentioned very very kindly the the work on on cross-border aid in Syria which I'll refrain from boring you with I'm very happy to talk about it um, but that is something that will never come to court, arguably can never come to court, arguably should never come to court. But it's something that for two and a half years, I've flown to New York several times a year to go round state after state after state to keep banging on the door and saying, you need to change the way you are doing things. 
because you have a responsibility to the 4.1 million people in northwest Syria. And it goes to this, again, I keep banging on that door, it's the ecosystem of approaches. Whilst this case rolls on in The Hague, we can't just sit here and, be, and say, brilliant, that's the end of the Syrian conflict. Um, we have to keep pushing on all avenues. We have to keep looking for, to end impunity for chemical weapons use in Syria. We have to keep pushing to end the regime's use of Captagon to fund itself and to destabilize its partners. We have to keep pushing to allow humanitarian access to civilians in the Northwest. And we can do all of that if we understand this idea of an ecosystemic approach to justice. And that is really where, starting from that place at the start of the Syrian conflict, where I certainly myself felt very disempowered, you can start to get a grasp on the monster that is this, this systemic violence. So that's really my story. Um, if I was to say anything, and this is the unsolicited advice bit, um, I'll pick up first on, on a couple of things that my colleagues have said. So the links with other people and the networking, I, I cannot stress enough. And when I was in, certainly an undergrad at master's and master's level, um, I used to say, well, how do you network with people when you go to an event and no one speaks to each other? Um, and you sort of leave after the drinks and you've really not spoken to anyone. But the answer is you put yourself in those rooms because maybe after five or six lectures, you meet someone. And that somebody, just like your master's student, can be your ticket to where you need to be. I met a colleague of mine. He needed to bring a high-profile um, judicial review against a government body. And he was too busy to do it, and so he asked me to do it. This was during my period of training. And I've been working with him now for four years. You have to put yourself in those situations where you give yourself those chances because nothing is happening if you're just sat at home watching Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, on the, the, the daily rate thing, um, I fully agree, and I'm, I'm, I, that's coming, admittedly, probably less powerfully from a, a white British male. But um, I also think that is something that you can, it's again understanding, reading the room, basically. I do a lot of work for advisory work for NGOs, and my daily rate will be something that I think is fair. Um, and I will try and keep it as low as possible, because essentially they are being funded to help people. And I'm not going to take any of their funds that I don't need to. On the other hand, um, I was involved in a claim the other day against a very high-profile insurer, and they sent me a very RC email saying that my hourly rates were exorbitantly high, to which I informed them that you're an insurer, get off my back and pay me my money. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's, being, it's being firm in the right places, and don't be afraid to be firm either. Um, other than that, I think my maybe original solicitor's advice, if you look at my sort of indirect journey to where I am now, it's start by following your nose. If something feels right and you're interested in it and you're good at it, push it. Don't, you know, there was a temptation at one point for me to, when I was sort of just on the cusp of, of leaving university, um, to go down a route of law that would have been extremely highly paid. But I'm so glad I didn't do that, 
because I'm now in a position where I do what I love every day of the week um, and I don't mind working whenever because it's my passion. Um, and I think the, 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 the thing I'll, I'll end on is, is don't rush and don't be afraid to be creative with where you want to go. Um, if you keep showing up, just like the networking thing, something will happen. And eventually a chance will come, like it came for me at Guernica, which at the time that I joined was just a startup. And at that point you have to make a decision and say, actually, you know what, I'm going to follow my nose this feels right, I'm going to be a little bit creative with where I'm going to go and then maybe you'll end up in a position where hopefully you get to do what you love for the rest of your life. So that's where I am and thank you for listening. Thank you very much. I mean, so much there from our, from our three speakers and our, the commonality there is a very grounded realism, very candid perhaps more candid you might get at some other careers events, but also, as you said, Mara, and, and, and um, Ada and Jack, also uh, covering uh, staying true to your values, your passion. I think your passion is something which drives you. Okay, we have ooh, just uh, 12 minutes. So remember, uh, after this event at 7, we go downstairs to the reception in the ground floor. And our guests are currently staying with us, so you're able to talk to them there. So don't worry if you didn't get the opportunity to ask questions now. But I think you've got, uh, hopefully, a chance for at least one or two rounds of questions. I'll take three questions uh, from the floor. When you ask a question, can you please identify who you are first, please? And try and keep it brief so we can get more questions in here first. Okay. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for this. It was very helpful. My name is Alia, and I'm a LSE student doing a master's in gender, peace, and security. And I also uh, work at an international development consultancy um, here in London. So my question is, um, it's a point that you touched upon uh, in regarding fee rates and um, pay and so on, because it's uh, something I sort of struggled with. Um, the, my first two jobs, I didn't negotiate at all because I was always under the impression that, you know, it, it, I won't get the job if I'm asking too much or you're fearful that they're going to think of you a certain way. Um, so in my last job, I kind of negotiated, but I felt like I wasn't as assertive or as, as firm. Um, I felt like how, so my question is, the question that I want to pose is that how do you sort of get over this Feeling, especially, so I'm from Sudan, and um, you know, if you're from the Middle East or Africa, you would feel like you know it's a bit shameful that you know to ask for money and you just accept what you have and that's okay. Yeah. Um, so how do you get over that? And this question is particular to you, Maro, and how do you, yeah, like how would you want people to approach that and being firm, but at the same time keeping that you know politeness and diplomacy and um, conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'll take two more questions in this round. Anybody at the end? Um, hello, first of all, um, thank you all for sharing a bit of your knowledge and expertise. Um, so my name is Dana, I'm from Saudi Arabia. I'm pursuing a master's degree in law here at the LSE. Uh, and my question is particularly for Fatwa, if I may. Um, what advice would you give a Middle Eastern person um, who would like to pursue an academic career abroad upon graduation? 
Thank you. And I'll take one more. Anybody towards the back? This lady here. Hi, my name is Noor and I'm studying social anthropology on undergrad. And I would like to ask a question um, to Morwa, if you may, in terms of if you want to kind of, it's on being creative and you want to pursue something to do with humanitarian aid or, you know, international, something to do with like the international field, but it's quite, your approach is quite creative, but it could be quite niche. So how do you sort of navigate that and approach networking events to sort of reach your goals in a way that seem, you know, very unconventional? So, yeah. I'll come back to you behind you for the next round, yeah, for the next first question. Who'd like to, to start? Yeah, sure. Well, before you start, may I just add one thing? Like, yeah. please keep in mind. Okay. So we don't have to, you know, the, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the other stuff. We are only on the day and over, so that's something to keep in mind. No worries. Development is also underpaid and overworked, but again, I guess it's about opportunities and it's about knowing, as, as I think Jack also mentioned, knowing where to push and where to uh, kind of hold back. And there are also kind of unique balance. So at the beginning, you build the network. So by building in the network, you're not that kind of robust, fierce negotiator. No, like you go with the flow, you ask people, okay, uh, so how much is your budget for this? And they'll be like, but how much you want to pay? And you're like, I might be too expensive for you. So if you tell me how much you, you're willing to pay, I can tell if it would work for me or not. Like there, there are different ways depending on the relationship you have with the institution. And then there are areas where you're like, no, this is my daily rate this is the flat rate and it's non-negotiable if you're like i don't know if it's the un you're more like fierce and femme about that kind of daily rate and if it's like an ngo you're kind of less um on that end and more on the compassionate uh, kind of end of things but even within the iron like within uh, and like ingos i mean local ngos is a different story like i volunteer i don't i don't take money from locals like that's just I don't know, right? Like I, I, I make enough money not to take money from the local people. But if you're if you're working with with within an institution with a like again, also the de development sector has a lot of consultancies, right? They're not all charitable. There are organizations where it's for money, for profit. So you need to also identify: Do you want to go for the for-profit sector, or do you want to go for the for the kind of charity sector of within the kind of development sector? And that also kind of teaches you where to negotiate, where to kind of do things. And again, like if you if you find the right mentor for yourself, you'll be able to kind of have a sounding voice, someone to tell you. Oh yes, that makes sense. Oh no, maybe push here more. And uh, and it's really funny because this there is no <clears throat> clear cut of how to do that. But there is, you just follow your heart because you know what is best based on that conversation. And obviously, always be polite. Like that's, and, but it's not I. <laughs> There's no shame in asking for your for the right amount for the work you're doing and also there is now a tendency to go for um kind of if you're doing something with people so co-consulting co-facilitating co-authoring whatever it is that you need to push for equal pay if you're doing equal amount of work push for equal pay don't accept to be paid less just because 
someone does so. I guess it's just learning, learning those boundaries. And it's about practice. Like you will know. It takes a couple of failed attempts to then get to the right um, uh, kind of place with that. But definitely there's no shame. And it's, it's nothing but you're just asking for your worth, for the worth of effort you're putting and for the worth of time that you're putting into the work. And, you know, I think, you know, as Arabs, we have the concept of ihsan, right? Like you do something with excellence. And if you know you'll do something with excellence, then you don't need to, like, worry about what others think because you know, you know your worth. Um, and Noor, Noor, right? Um, I would say create small samples of the creativity you want to show. Because with the creative industry, it's very difficult to understand what's in your mind of how, or how you want to turn something into something creative. So if you have the time to play with a few ideas, do that. And then you can market them and be like, okay, I looked at your website, you have one, two, three. Here are a couple of things of how I would tweak what you're doing and do it differently. Um, and there is more open mind nowadays because there is an understanding that you have to appeal to, to audiences in different ways. So just, just create samples. And again, there are lots of events where um, kind of media is linked directly or creative industry is linked directly to, uh, to different sort, like forms of work. You know, even within film festivals, you'll have, you know, genres, right? So understand those genres, understand the audiences and what they are looking for. And just a little bit more research will get you to where you need to be. Thanks for the question. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, Middle East has, I mean, Middle Eastern academics have, uh, I mean, they're expected to study, research, and teach about Middle East when they're graduate. But, I mean, it makes sense, of course, because we have a comparative advantage. You know, I mean, if you, if you let's say, you know, you still have a network there, you know, the cultural codes, like, you know, you have the linguistic abilities, you have a comparative advantage over others. But at the same time, I think that shouldn't limit you from you know the pursuing or you know the focusing on other geographies like you know you you, you can as well be an expert or um, you know the, at least you know to know something about other you know the uh, regions or you know the other um, thematic stuff as well. Uh, so what I would suggest uh, uh, would be to um, you know um, engage in co uh, maybe you know the collaborations you know to collaborate with others other scholars uh, and also. Uh, be part of interdisciplinary projects. Uh, in that sense, uh, you know the fellowships might work. Uh, one thing I forgot to you know to mention uh, during my you know ten-minute speech was uh, the importance of scholarships and fellowships. I mean, they changed my life. I mean, that's how I you know they ended up in the United States, for instance, like in the Fulbright Scholarship, or I ended up in Germany in the GAD Scholarship. So uh, don't uh, think that you are unqualified, or don't think that they are so competitive that they will be you know, interested in you know, giving you the scholarship. No, I mean. Uh, you make a difference, especially if you're shortlisted. I mean, everything happens during this, you know, the, the 10, 15 minutes, you know, the interview with you. Uh, so fellowships might be, uh, you know, the way to, you know, to break this, you know, the path. And maybe you can uh, broaden your, you know, the research and, you know, the, if you're interested in teaching for us as well. Almost out of time. I promise this gentleman here his hand up. Uh, please. Thank you for informative stories. Uh, I'm Hossein. I'm a PhD candidate in politics at Royal Holloway University. My question is that we usually talk about after PhD graduation, but what opportunities I can look for during my studies before my graduation. 
As far as I concerned, assistantship position is not very co common in comparison with United States here. So my question is that what kind of opportunities available for a PhD student during uh, his or her study? Anybody else? We'll take one last question before we uh, I see you're interested in going downstairs and having a drink. Yeah, oh, here, yes. Uh, hello, my name is Anas. Uh, my question is uh, rather simple, but complex at the same time. Uh, is the development sector uh, is having a career in the development sector viable inside the Middle East? So, as a locality. Michael, maybe you want to answer the first one. So. Um, in my experience, for current PhD students, one of the most important things they can do. Or can you hear me? Or is the microphone? Yes, of course. I should be picking this up. My experience with uh, PhD students um, wanting an academic career is the most important thing that they can do in during during doing their PhD, which is time-consuming enough, is doing some teaching. Because when you go for those first jobs, often the first job might be a research fellowship, yeah, and the research fellowship may not give you an opportunity to do the teaching. But when you go for the first academic job, I know this from experience at LSE, we are looking for some teaching experience. Not necessarily a lot of teaching experience, but at least some evidence that a PhD student has done some teaching. So here at LSE, for example, uh, PhD students often serve as what we call graduate teaching assistants. So they, they teach small groups of undergraduates. So the, the faculty teach the lectures, and the GTAs, as we call them, teach the students. I know from writing references for, for, for uh, previous PhD students, that's important. Um, we have it here when we, um, in my department, Geography and Environment at LSE, when we uh, have applications for jobs, which are very competitive, yeah? Put out an uh, assistant proposition, probably over 100 applications, yeah? Um, if teaching is, is one of the things that you have to do, and we get an application with no teaching experience, and the applicant says, I'm sure I'll be a great teacher. Don't worry. You know, they won't get shortlisted, probably. Okay? So find some means, even if you're in your institution, there may not be something, find some means of doing some teaching. Um, and also demonstrate some awareness of what teaching is in terms of pedagogy. In LSC, for example, to get uh, uh, promoted, not only do they expect you to produce wonderful publications and be a, what's called a good citizen in the school, but also to have been innovative in your teaching. We don't expect that for somebody applying for an assistant proposition, but at least some awareness. For example, issues for a mo at the moment, I don't know, decolonizing the curriculum. There are all sorts of uh, interesting ideas out there. Um, and I'm sure, let's say you call Holloway, yeah? LSC is a teaching and learning center. I'm sure there'd be something equivalent at Royal Holloway. So maybe approach them to grant opportunities and you do something with them. And, it, and it's a wonderful thing to demonstrate in your, in your CV. Okay? And? Uh, yes, obviously. Uh, Middle East is, is, is a ripe environment for the development work. Um, but I would say this for everyone. Development sector is drying funding is drying, which is why you need, if you are in that sector, you need to be creative. You need to, to also build skills in a way that makes them transferable. 
So no, if this if this work will never exist, I don't know, in five years from now or 10 years from now, what else can you do? So I, I'd say start building that and doing that in a way that kind of help you. This is the first thing. The second thing, if you are from a certain country, if you want to work locally, it means you're going to be underpaid. So my advice would be, I don't know, if you're Iraqi, try to work in Jordan, for example. Random, but like just don't pick your country as your station country because that doesn't give you a good starting salary. And also it doesn't give you more exposure because I think working in different contexts challenges our understanding of things and help us grow and learn. While sometimes we're very biased to, to ourselves, to thinking that we know best. One thing actually about bias, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it to everybody. In research and in working in the development sector, there's a lot of blah, blah, blah around, but you're from that country, so you're very biased to the blah, blah, blah. <laughs> on, like, honestly, BS. I call BS on that. I'm not going to be polite about it, really. So just push back first. Second, no one is unbiased. Everybody is biased. Where you're a white man, black man, white woman, black woman, whatever, you are biased. You have your, your starting point of understanding that or that context or whatever so just acknowledge that and as a local push back against anybody that tells you you're biased show them their biases as well right because you know they are biased too um and this is not against everybody but we need to be very aware like what whomever you are you are biased because you've been educated in a certain way um, and you've been told something in a certain way and you have your standings even if you think you don't. So just knowing that and being assertive, like, yes, I stand with this and that's where I start. And, and in research, if you state that, then it's valid, right? That's your starting point. It doesn't invalidate anything that you do. Uh, so yeah, don't just push back people. Please, Middle Easterns, just don't let them tell you what to do. <laughs> Please, like I have faced this a lot. And I have been told a lot that like I'm not good enough because somebody is very insecure about who, who they are. So I would like you just stand your ground and be like, no, I am. And here are why you're not, <laughs> uh, you know, right about me or about this X, Y, and Z issue. So yeah, just kind of push back, please. So I, I and this is a very, very quick comment, yeah, rather than question. A question, yeah. Or should I get up later? In the Maybe you can announce what the question is and everybody can consider it, including the guests. <laughs> and that could be our discussion point downstairs okay. when we start. That's a lot of pressure on this question, but okay. <laughs> um, my question is more to everyone, but actually on that note, is that I, my name is Sabrina Salama. I'm a master's student doing development management. Uh, I worked in the development sector in Jordan for a few years, I would say, most of my life. And uh, I'm now looking to work on a more international scale, but still focusing on the region. And my question is more or a fear that I have is that when you are when you become so distant from the actual place you're focusing on, how much of a bubble do you become like immersed in? Like do you actually get detached from it? Because I often see that whenever I'm working, like on a local context, whenever I'm working with people who, who are abroad on the region. So how do you navigate that and is it actually a thing? That's a great question. Yeah, I think maybe. Can we do a short answer? Yeah, I can try. Uh, an excellent question. Um, I'd say, I mean, 
even if you're not a local, stay close to the local communities, like stay, stay true to the local context and try to build, again, networks also around that local community. You will find champions, people who kind of help keep you up to date and help you understand the different dynamics that you don't even understand. Like even, you know, for example, I'm from Yemen, right? I don't know every single place in Yemen the same way I know the places I grew up in, right? Like it's just impossible. But what I can do is talk to people all the time, stay close to them, and you know what? There is no perfect answer, which is why localization is really important, which is why in whatever role we do, it's really important to keep the people we're working with in the center of the conversation and their opinions in the center of the conversation. And that's the best that we can do. Like there is no perfect scenario. If you are very local living in a village, you're not gonna be able to have your voice heard the same way you are because you have all of the capacities that brought you to where you are today. But what you can do is amplify their voices. They do have a voice, they do have opinions, they do have understandings. What we can do is lift that up, amplify it, build on it, kind of discuss it with them. And that's the best we can do. Like there is no solution because it's a very, almost top-down approach the whole development sector so as much as we do localization as much as we take it from the bottom and stay true to that then that's, that's the best we can do thank you very much